0: We want to begin with a scripture reading um, here this morning. Uh, last week, this is the passage that I chose to, to present the sermon on. It comes out of Isaiah chapter 9. And while we're reading this passage right here, earlier in this section, we're told that whatever's about to come is going to be something that can turn gloom and anguish and despair into joy and hope and celebration. It can turn darkness into light. In that Uh, transformation is embodied in the coming of a child. And so uh, I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne uh, of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. His name is wonderful. If you would open your Bibles to the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see where that name is going to be revealed to Mary by the angel Gabriel. The name Jesus... uh, is a name that uh, brings about thoughts of salvation and a savior. It's a name that is revealed because Jesus is coming unlike anyone else. He's coming in a way that will change the world forevermore. He's coming to bring salvation to his people. And Gabriel is the angel who gets to bring this message. Now, the scene that we're about to read is, uh, there's, There's quite a bit behind it um, because, well, on the first hand, Mary is uh, a young lady who uh, is engaged, but she is a virgin. Um, But she's probably somebody, based on everything we can gather, who has grown up taking her religious faith seriously, has grown up taking uh, Torah and uh, taking uh, the the, uh, reading of Scripture seriously. She probably knows her Bible pretty well. And so when Gabriel shows up, that's going to immediately remind her of. I actually know who this angel is. Uh, I've heard of him before. This isn't his first appearance. You don't have too many named angels in the Bible, but Gabriel's one of them. And he was sent to someone else earlier in the biblical story. Now, I've, uh, I've been at camps and things before, uh, like church camps and stuff. I remember the question being asked, if you could meet anyone in the Bible who would you meet? Uh, and sometimes you have to exclude Jesus, even though that sounds terrible to do. Uh, like never exclude Jesus, but because everyone will say Jesus. But, uh, but one thing I haven't really thought of before is, uh, and it's not a message I've, or an answer I've usually heard before, is like an angel or one of the angelic type figures. Usually it's a, it's a person uh, that people name. But here we have an angel who shows up from hundreds of years in Israel's past and Mary is going to meet him. The first time he came was in Daniel chapter 9, uh, or the earlier time we came was in Daniel chapter 9. And Daniel had just finished a rather lengthy prayer. It's a beautiful prayer if you get a chance to read it sometime. But the context of it is Daniel is in Babylon instead of his home because his home was destroyed by the Babylonians. And he was taken to go live as an exile, a captive, and a foreigner in a foreign and strange land dominated by a foreign power by uh, Babylon. And then uh, eventually Babylon was overthrown by the Persians. And it's right in all of that turmoil that Daniel finds himself, and he's recognizing something. He's been reading the book of Jeremiah, and he knows that there's a 70-year period of captivity. And if you start doing the math from when Daniel got there to when he's saying this prayer, you're looking at roughly 67 or so years. What that means is now that Babylon has fallen, Persia has taken over, and we're about at the 70 years, maybe it's time for God to start acting again. Maybe it's time for God to rescue his people. Maybe it's time to send us back home. And so Daniel prays this prayer of repentance, of begging for God's mercy, of promising to honor God's name. And in response to the prayer, he has the appearance of a divine messenger, uh, an angel named Gabriel. And Gabriel comes and tells Daniel something that ends the chapter on a rather tragic note. Um, Yes, there is going to be the end of this 70-year exile, but there's a sense in which exile will remain far longer than you thought possible. Um, he then tells them a story, Gabriel tells Daniel, about not just the 70 years, but the 77s. Uh, and it's like, this is an exile on steroids. Uh, it's not just 70, it's 70 times 7. And then he, then he breaks it down. And you look at it, and it's really hard to like, come up with any theory of interpretation that takes those numbers literally, and you can, you can trace them out and figure them out. But here's what you do end up seeing at the end of it. You see a return, and then you see a period of seven weeks and 62 weeks. Then you see the Messiah come, but then the Messiah is cut off. And then you see what's called the abomination of desolation where the abominable one leaves desolate, everything in his path, and then it ends. That's not probably the message that Daniel was hoping for at the end of that prayer. He was hoping for something maybe a little bit more joyous about everything's going to be wonderful again. Just just wait. God is coming. And he's going to bring salvation and joy and he's going to reign and he's going to be your king forevermore. And exile will be over forever and the throne of David will be reestablished and you will have your Messiah. Like maybe something a little bit more like that. Well, Gabriel doesn't get to bring that message back then. But as he appears to Mary... He's able to finally bring that message. Uh, I don't like bringing bad news to people. I I wonder if Gabriel wasn't thrilled that that was the message he was going to bring. But now he comes, and he gets to bring a much greater message. In Luke chapter 1, in verse uh, 28, Gabriel appears to Mary. It says, And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was perplexed at this statement. She kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, "'Do not be afraid, Mary.' For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Some of that very language, by the way, comes from the book of Daniel the idea of that kingdom that has no end. And so what we see is the angel Gabriel does come, and he promises her not just that she's going to have a child, but she's going to have a child that will change the world forevermore. She's going to have a child who will be the son of God himself, who will be a king, and who through him, justice and the peace and the reign of God will be established. Now, that's quite a difficult thing to believe um, for a couple of reasons. One, how long has it been? since the days of Daniel when J- Jerusalem was destroyed and they haven't had a king that whole time all of a sudden God's going to do that again and he's going to do it from Mary like it, maybe if she was a princess or her dad was a king or something like that, that would that would you could make that fit but to come from this family from Nazareth and all of a sudden this is going to happen and not only that she's not even married yet and she does she, she, she hasn't had relations yet And so, like, for all of these reasons, this is a tough message to believe. And she actually asked Gabriel about it. She says, how is this even going to be possible? And his answer is kind of a beautiful one, and you can read it, put succinctly in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. And I think that is a message that every one of us here um, could benefit from coming to trust a little bit more that nothing is impossible with God. It doesn't matter how long Babylon has reigned or how long you've been in exile or how long your hopes have been dashed. As long as there is a God in heaven, there is hope. As long as God is alive, nothing is impossible with him. And through the life of Mary and through this season, as we reflect back on these moments and we remember this, let's remember that message as well. That there's nothing impossible with God. If you would, uh, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 is in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus has the Passover meal with his disciples and where he takes certain parts of it and he brings new significance and meaning to them. Um, We're going to be pretty much camped out in Luke, uh, in the birth narrative of Luke, uh, in the lessons this morning, in the devotionals. But I do want to look at this passage here in Luke 22 because it reminds us of something that is crucial to know about uh, those birth narratives, those birth stories about Jesus they give greater significance to the Lord's Supper when we understand what they are all about. And the Lord's Supper, I think in return, gives greater significance to them as well. In Luke 22, just like uh, so many other passages, verse 15, Jesus says something as he's gathered around the table. He says, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Eat this Passover. So again, the Passover is something that has a long, rich tradition and history prior to this meal that Jesus is having. This is an annual celebration. It's an annual celebration of a great time when Israel was captive, when they were slaves, when they were held back by the, the powers of Egypt, and they were put in bondage, and their lives were made miserable, and death was hung over their heads. Their children were killed. Their lives were a death sentence. And they lived in misery, and they called out to God, and the God who rescues rescued. The God who saves, saved. And God came to them and he heard them in their distress and he raised up a deliverer named Moses and Moses led them out of Egypt through the powerful and mighty hand of God, demonstrated through these different signs and wonders that God did over the Egyptians. So that at the end of the story, there is no doubt in anyone's mind who is actually Lord and supreme overall. And it's not the guy who sits on a throne in Egypt and it's not any of the gods that he worships. It's the Lord God Yahweh, it's the God of Israel, it's the God who Moses serves, and he led them out of of Egypt. And as they left, uh, they had an annual celebration to remember the mighty, wonderful, salvific acts of God. How God led them out of the bondage and gave them new life and hope and freedom. But if you keep reading that story, you'll know a couple of things. They do leave Egypt, and that's wonderful. And they do it miraculously by the power of a mighty God, which is incredible. But when they get to the wilderness, the story, which you think is going to end with them going and taking the promised land, uh, it hits a bit of a hiccup. Uh, and the story doesn't actually go as wonderfully as you'd like it to. In fact, what happens is they end up rejecting God's salvation. They, they want to go back to Egypt, even. Uh, they reject the promised land. It's like God has something terrible behind them and beautiful before them, and they want to reject the beautiful for the terrible. And so God allows them uh, to get their wish of not entering the promised land. But he doesn't send them back to Egypt. He lets them live out the remainder of their lives in that awkward in-between period. We call it the wilderness wanderings, and it's a rough time period. You can read about it in the book of, of Numbers. It's a time period where they have no direction or sense. They're not going backwards. They're not going forwards. They're just stuck. But God eventually does allow the next generation to enter, but Moses isn't among them. So that's, that's the story of the great Passover. And then something of the awkward conclusion of it uh, as a whole generation dies out in the wilderness. Jesus knows that Passover story. And Jesus is here gathered with his disciples and they're remembering that great act of God's deliverance. But what Jesus is going to do, and you can read about this uh, in each of the Gospels, they play upon this idea over and over again, is that Jesus is going to bring about a new Passover. Jesus is going to become a new Passover. Jesus is gonna bring about a new Exodus. In fact, in Luke, the word Exodus is used When Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah, at the transfiguration, and he says that they were talking about the exodus that Jesus was going to perform in Jerusalem, that's the Greek word exodus. That's what Moses did. Jesus is going to redo the Moses story, only it's not going to have that, that awkward ending. It's not going to have the ending outside of the promised land. It's going to have an ending where they're all able to dine together again in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is here at this meal, going to uh, enlighten and, uh, and redefine for His disciples what the significance of what they're doing is. And the first thing that uh, that he redefines for them is, if you look at verse nineteen, He says, "And when he had taken some of the bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He says, What I want you to remember as you take this bread is my body. My body. Jesus has a body, an actual flesh and blood, real body. And he got that body from the announcement of Gabriel that we just read a moment ago through the birth of of Mary. He was born like any other human child is born. Uh, But he was actually given a body. The reason that's so powerful and significant is because Jesus is not just like you and me. Jesus, if we read the story carefully, you come to find out is himself the embodiment, the incarnation of that powerful, saving God, the God who uh, was active in overthrowing Pharaoh, the God who speaks from the burning bush, the God who is all throughout that Passover story, he's still alive, he's still well, and now he has a body, and they're sitting around a table dining with him. And he says, never forget that I came in this body. Never forget that this body was actually given for you. Notice, this is my body, which is given for you you. And I tend to think that's not just for the people at that table. God took on a body and gave it for you and for me and for everyone here today and for everyone in this whole world, because God was going to change the world forever. And the most significant thing that's ever happened in world history is that the God who created the universe became a created part of it. He entered into it in a body. Let's remember that body that was given for you as we take this bread. Uh, Let's uh, say a prayer also. Our dear God and our Holy Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for your great acts of salvation. We thank you for your divine power. We thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for the body that was given to us. We pray that as we take this, we remember your love, that uh, we give thanks to you for the salvation and the hope that we have. And we love you, God, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As the meal continues in Luke chapter 22 and verse 20, Jesus is going to redefine another part of the Passover meal to give significance to Christians from that point forward. And One of the things that is truly remarkable about what we're in the middle of doing right now is Jesus gave his life for us. Jesus' body was beaten for us. Jesus' blood was shed for us. And he wants that to be a regular part of our lives, looking, looking back to that moment. And there are a lot of ways that you could remember things. Um, you could uh, have uh, an annual celebration like like Christmas or like Passover or something like that, where every year you get together and you celebrate it. Um, you could uh, We could have had daily scripture readings or something like that, uh, where we read through the Gospels. And Jesus could have said, I want you to remember this. So uh, every day at 8 a.m., I want you to wake up and I want you to read uh, the, the Gospel of John, and then the next day do Luke, and then the next day do Mark. And then, like he could have gone through and given some uh, assignment like that. He could have said prayer which I think would be a really powerful way to remember. In fact, prayer is a part of this. But it is significant to me that Jesus used a meal, something that uh, all people need, something that people enjoy. Uh, He said he wants them to gather together and to have this meal and to take this meal together in remembrance of him. And meals, if you were reading through Luke, are actually a really important part of the ministry of Jesus. Uh, Especially in Luke, Jesus gathers for meals a lot and does some of his most profound teaching at the table. Uh, And it's actually at the end of Luke in chapter 24, after his resurrection, that he meets two disciples and they have a lengthy Bible study together. They walk with each other on the road. And during this conversation, during their Bible study, while they're sitting and talking with Jesus, they don't quite recognize who it is yet because Jesus has, has died and they don't know that he's raised and they're talking with someone. And it says their eyes were prevented from seeing him. But then it says they broke bread together And at the breaking of the bread, their eyes were opened, and they recognized who they were with. There's something about Jesus that is revealed at an even deeper level at the breaking of bread. There's something about Jesus that as we gather together in his name and in his memory, we experience him more fully as we're here. When Jesus talks about the blood, when he talks about the the cup and he re-signifies it, redefines it to represent the blood itself, he does so... When, By using the words in verse 20, uh, this is uh, my blood which is poured out for you, and it's the new covenant in my blood. Um, Again, he expresses that the body and the blood were for you. And here he says, what I want you to think about is the new covenant that's in my blood. There's a couple of Old Testament images that are kind of combined in that moment. One of them is after leaving Exodus, uh, they get to Mount Sinai. They get the Ten Commandments, they get this long list of laws, and the people are asked, basically, if they're going to enter into this covenant. Moses reads the laws to them, and they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, we will be obedient. And then they get a bunch of animals, and they slit their throats, and they fill up these bowls with blood, and they throw the blood all around. And they throw it on the people, they throw it on the book, they throw it on the uh, tabernacle, they throw the blood everywhere. And that blood is the blood of the covenant. And what Jesus is doing is he's taking that language of the Exodus story and the Passover, and he's saying, this is the blood of the new covenant. There's a new shedding of blood, and it's not some animal there at the base of Mount Sinai. It's going to be my blood itself. When he says new covenant... If you're looking back through your Old Testament, you're going to find a passage that will talk about the new covenant that's unlike the covenant that God made with the uh, the fathers uh, there in the days of Exodus. It comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, and in that passage, you're again in Babylonian exile, and you have uh, this promise that that covenant led you to exile. There's going to be a new covenant that's going to bring you back home. There's going to be a new covenant that uh, where I will remember their lawless deeds and their sin no more, and, and they will be forgiven, and no longer will every man teach his neighbor and his brother saying, "Know the Lord, for all will know me, to the least of them to the greatest of them." Jesus picks up on that idea and says, "That new covenant of forgiveness and of hope and of salvation and of community and unity that doesn't lead to death and exile, but leads to life, that's the covenant that I want you to remember with this new blood. And so let's say a prayer and then remember that covenant. Remember our commitment to the Lord. Give thanks to him for his blood, which was shed for us here this morning. Our dear God, we love you and we thank you for all that you do. We thank you for your blood of the new covenant, for the new uh, covenant that we have with you, for the hope and for the forgiveness that you've offered to us through it. God, we thank you, we love you, and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, we also want to remind you about the opportunity uh, to give, uh, which, uh, which we have in order to help those who are um, in our community abroad, uh, who are not as fortunate as perhaps some of us are, or to help one another through times of need, or to help the work of the church here. Uh, you have ways of giving online. Uh, I think there's uh, boxes in the back that you can give in also, but we want to remind you to do that. We'll say a prayer, and then we'll continue our service this morning. Our dear God, we thank you so much for uh, your generosity towards us. And we pray that we can learn from that, appreciate that, and in gratitude reciprocate that to those around us. We pray for a generous spirit and for uh, the funds that are given uh, to be beneficial and effective at uh, making positive change in this world for you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Going back to Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter one, Gabriel has visited uh, Mary and she's found out the news that something is going to change forever. Um, she then goes and she uh, visits her, uh, her uh, relative Elizabeth. Um, they have a, a moment together. The, the John the Baptist, who's in Elizabeth's womb, leaps for joy. It's a beautiful story. But then Mary is going to offer some words of prophecy. She's going to offer some words that come uh, through the, the, the filling of the Holy Spirit. And they're going to be powerful and prominent for understanding the rest of the story that's going to follow. Uh, It's it's a strange, there's a a hint in which it's kind of strange, because it doesn't sound like the thing a mother would ordinarily say when she finds out she's going to be pregnant. Uh, In church tradition, this passage is called the Magnificat. Uh, It's in Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 56. But when you read through it, like, If I were thinking, all right, Travis, you just found out you're going to have your first child, write a poem about it. Uh, It wouldn't sound anything like this. Uh, I wouldn't say things like uh, um, verse 52. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. He established or he filled the, uh, uh, the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty handed. Like those are things that I just wouldn't immediately come to my mind. Um, But there are perhaps a couple of reasons why this does come to Mary's mind. I think one of them might be the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think another one might be the child she's going to have isn't going to be an ordinary child. He's not going to be like any other child who's lived before. and He's going to do these types of incredible things. What you're seeing here is, yes, a look backwards in a sense, uh, a look backwards to, uh, well, the, the, a lot of the language uh, and the, the ideas of this song actually echo back to uh, the second chapter of 1 Samuel, where Hannah finds out that she's pregnant unexpectedly with a child, and then she has this lengthy prayer that you can read that's a beautiful and powerful prayer, and it sets the stage for a lot of what's going to follow in the books of First and Second Samuel. Well, that's what Mary's going to do right here with the idea of uh, setting the stage for what's going to follow in the Gospel of Luke. And what you're going to see prominently is the idea of a major role reversal by the hand of God. Everything you thought you knew is the opposite of everything that God wants you to know. Uh, And this is going to be revealed through Jesus. So when we talk about a great and powerful and mighty kingdom, it's not one that comes through the strongest military and the vast amount of wealth and destruction of enemies. It's actually going to be a kingdom that's for the children. A kingdom where the poor are, will often listen and the rich will often walk away. Where the tax collectors will sell half of what they have and give their possessions to the poor. And those who you would expect maybe to be the most religious and, and, and spiritual like the Pharisees. They're going to be the ones who are the most stingy about the kingdom itself. It's going to be one where everything you thought you knew is going to be reversed. And that's an idea that Mary's going to pick up on even the birth. When you think of all the people in the world unlikely to have a child, a virgin should be pretty high on that list. Uh, But God is going to reverse everything you thought you knew. And so uh, I want to read through it before we bring this uh, devotional thought to a close. In verse 46, it says, And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regard for the humble state of his servant. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. Uh, and by the way, uh, that's something that, uh, that I, you know, if you look at the religious tradition of counting Mary blessed uh, throughout the history of the church, you can see a lot of different forms that that's taken. Um, some of them perhaps uh, further than we'd like to go, or we'd be comfortable with going. But please don't let that stop you. From doing what she says right here, uh, considering her blessed, considering her a very important and central and, and key part of the mission of God in this world. She plays an important. She she is the mother from whom the Lord Himself was born in human flesh. That's a powerful and wonderful thing. But she goes on in verse forty-nine. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and his, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. For he has done mighty deeds with his arm, and has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. And he has brought down rulers from their thrones, and exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, and sent the rich away empty-handed. He has given help to Israel his servant, and in remembrance of his mercy." as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned home. Everything you thought you knew, be prepared for it to change as the story of Jesus unfolds. We have a lot of songs that we sing and a lot of songs in our books and on the screen. Um, But for me personally, uh, and I hope that that it... I hope this will ring true for you as well. Um, Some of the songs that we're singing this morning, some of the songs that we often categorize as like Christmas songs that we only sing, you know, one time a year or so, read the words of those songs. Those are, in my estimation, some of the most theologically rich beautiful and powerful songs that we sing. I love a lot of the imagery, a lot of the scriptural echoes, the, the, uh, the beauty that it puts into your heart and soul as you think about them, especially with some of the songs that we're going to sing here in just a moment um, when, when we're done with this uh, reading. In Luke chapter 2, this is, we've had the angel's announcement We've had Mary's reaction to it in the Magnificat. In Luke chapter 2, we're actually going to see the events of the birth of Jesus take place. And some of them are rather famous, uh, even though a lot of times with especially such a significant moment... I mean, we, we base all of time on this moment right here. You can tell it's, it's, a, it's a significant one in our life and in our culture and in the world around us. Um, this moment right here, as things become popular, you could... You know, you can get uh, different ideas kind of mixed w- up with it to where you get some pictures that aren't exactly the way the Bible images them. You know, uh, like Jesus out there in the middle of nowhere and, uh, and the, the, uh, the three wise men coming up to the manger and all that. Like all of those are, that doesn't actually happen in the story. Uh, but what you do have is I think a continuation of this theme of Mary being the humble servant of God exalting the humble and bringing down those who are on high and those who are mighty, of God doing all things in the least expected way possible. Because what we've seen so far is we've seen that Israel is in need and is longing for a source of hope and salvation as they are under foreign uh, occupation by the Romans and, and they're not their own people and they're longing for this great kingdom. And when you look at stories of great kings being born, You don't often see them happen in these very common, ordinary, and very humble circumstances. Where is Jesus born? Uh, Well, apparently there's a census, and so uh, the Romans are telling everyone where to go and which cities to go visit and count themselves, and so they have to go do this. So they have to go uh, register for a census at their ancestral home, the city of their ancestors, which for Jesus and his family would be uh, Bethlehem. Uh, And so they end up traveling to Bethlehem, and uh, we're not told exactly who they're staying with, um, but... The the word manger, we don't exactly know precisely what that word means, uh, like the Greek word. So we translate it as manger. And really, the only time I ever hear manger is talking about Jesus. It's not a word that we use, like, in our... In our ordinary vernacular, it's a Jesus word. Uh, And so because of that, it's a word that we don't exactly even know what it means, but it seems to be uh, the place where the animals stay. And in ancient homes, uh, there you had uh, guest rooms. Uh, You had the rooms that people lived in. But then you also had places where the animals would stay. And it seems that wherever they're staying... The guest room and the rooms that people are are in are already full. And so they go down to where the animals sleep, where the animals are. And that's where Mary ends up wrapping Jesus in chapter 2 and verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes, and she laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the guest room or the inn. And so they end up down there with the animals with the king of the whole universe, the creator of all, God in human flesh, as a helpless babe being wrapped up in warm clothes by his mom and laid there with him. It's a picture, it's, I mean, when you just, I don't know. There are some things that in the Bible, when you read about them, like before having kids, and then you read about them after having kids, it changes the way that you think about them, and it changes the, the way that you kind of picture them. And there's just something now that is, uh, very sweet, that is very, I don't know, just heartwarming, I guess, about the idea of a mother holding her firstborn child there. They've traveled, they're not even home, they've had to go this this great distance, they are not even in a room where they could be comfortable, but she's going to make sure that he's wrapped up, that he's cared for, she's going to love him, she's going to provide, and that's, it's a beautiful picture, it's a picture of love and of sweetness, but the thing that is so incredible about it is the helpless babe that she's holding is not just a helpless babe. It is a helpless babe, but that is a child that has a long history. (laughs) That is a child who is God himself. And God has come in the form of a child to live out the human experience so that we as humans can connect with God, not as some distant, invisible power that you pray to and that you never actually get to see or know or experience. But he came to be a present God among us, a God who we can see how he deals with what we deal with in life. In all of the scenarios and the situations that Jesus encounters throughout the gospel of Luke and throughout any of the gospels, as you read them, you're supposed to read them, right? Recognizing this is how God himself would deal with these encounters and these circumstances. This is how God would deal with seeing a person who is in need. This is how God would deal with a sinner. This is how God would deal with a paralyzed guy who gets brought through his roof. And, And you come to see this great image of God willingly making himself a helpless babe. Willingly becoming a child. Willingly growing into this man to show us who we are supposed to be. But then also willingly being beaten and arrested and giving his life for us to make us who we ought to be. Uh, God, through this story, has entered into human history and, again, has changed everything. So when this happens, it's a silent night. (laughs) What I mean is there's no fireworks. There's no great celebration that a new king has been born. It's a quiet night. The neighbors probably have no idea that anything special has just taken place. They're going to sleep themselves While, without anyone knowing, the plan is in place that 2,000 years later on the other side of the world, we'll all be gathered here today uh, praying about it and singing about it and thinking about it. It was a special night. Well, there were some shepherds who got some inside information that this is not just like any other night. And angels appeared to them as well. And they were told that God has changed everything. Uh, Luke chapter 2 and verse 10 says, But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring to you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. And keep that in your mind, by the way. Uh, For today in the city of David, there will be born to you a Savior who is the Christ, the Lord. And the sign will be, you will find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. And so then, uh, verse 13, Then suddenly there appeared with the angels a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. You know, I mentioned it as a quiet night. The neighbors might not have known what was happening. But in the heavenly realm... The excitement couldn't be contained. The, the joy and the sound of praising and singing as innumerable angels were joining together. There was a party happening. There was a celebration. They knew that amazing things were taking place, even on this quiet, holy, and, uh, and, uh, and still evening. After the birth of Jesus, um, Mary and Joseph went to the temple. Uh, to uh, present him there, to make an offering for the firstborn child. So that's something that was uh, prescribed in Leviticus chapter twelve as uh, something that parents would do. So they go there to do this. And one thing that's interesting, continuing the theme of uh, humility in the story, is in Luke chapter two and verse twenty four, we're told that they offer a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. If you read Luke chapter, or sorry, uh, Leviticus chapter twelve and verse eight, It mentions that that's the offering you have or that you give if you're unable to afford a lamb. Um, What we're seeing with Mary and Joseph is uh, even as they go to the temple to offer uh, their sacrifices and their offerings for their newborn son, they're doing so with the class of people in poverty. Um, As you read through Luke, you're going to see um, young men and old men and young women and old women and the rich, and the poor, and those who are captive, and those who are free, and those who are righteous, and those who are unrighteous, they're all humanity together going to, be, uh, going to have the opportunity and going to be called through the mission and the work of Jesus to the gift of salvation. One of the things that you'll see is it's for all people. And that becomes a central and, and, and essential point to understanding Luke and then the gospel of Acts that follows as this message of salvation no longer remains in Jerusalem or in Galilee, but it expands out to the whole rest of the world. And you have story after story of taking this message to even places like Athens and Rome in the ancient world where you know people would have had very little thought or consideration of of Israel or of a Jewish Messiah, and they wouldn't even know the significance of it until they begin to see the effects of it. And that's the story that Luke is grounding right now. It's going to eventually end with the gospel of salvation proclaimed to the whole world. And as Jesus goes to the temple for uh, the offerings to be made, you're going to run into a couple of prophets there. One is a prophet named Simeon. One is a prophetess named Anna. And Anna has been there has been, has been alive for 84 years. She's been a widow for a very long time, and she spends day and night at the temple serving God faithfully. She's someone who has dedicated her life to the service of God. And when this child comes, if you look at verse 38, of chapter 2 says at that very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak to of him to all those who were looking at the redemption for the redemption of Israel here you have someone who knows that there are people hoping and longing for Israel to be redeemed and she finally sees the source of that this is a woman who knew something central and invaluable and, and, and important she is a prophetess through whom God was able to reveal divine and important truths And earlier in the story, you read about a man named Simeon. In verse 25, it says, And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Notice those looking for the redemption of Israel, those looking for the consolation of Israel. These are people with hope for greater things, and they're looking and longing for it. And that's why this is such a momentous occasion when Jesus comes to the temple, because they're finally able to see what will bring about the realization of those hopes into actuality. And they're going to see God himself in the form of Jesus who will change the world forever. And when Simeon sees this, verse 27, it says, He came in the Spirit into the temple. And when uh, the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out the customs of the law, he took him into his arms and he blessed him and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and his mother were amazed at this, which was being said about him. Imagine uh, you take your child and a prophet grabs him and says those types of words in the Holy Spirit about him. But notice... The universality of that message of hope. He says, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples. Whether it's an 84-year-old woman at the temple, whether it's a young girl, Mary, finding out that she's going to be the source through whom this child is born, whether it's Zacharias or whether it's uh, Elizabeth or whether it's uh, the apostles who will be called or whether it's the shepherds who are out working. Like even in this story, you're seeing all different kinds of people brought into this message and brought into this story. And we have the invitation of being brought into this story of salvation as well. It is a message of hope and salvation to every one of us. And as we bring the service to a close, remember what God has done. Remember the body and the blood that were given for you. Remember that God, out of love for you, became that child, grew into that man, and gave his life for you. So that not just one group of people, or one class, or one race, or one uh, gender can find hope and salvation, but that all people can have the opportunity before God to stand with him justified, cleansed, pure, holy, saved, released from bondage, from captivity, from sin and strife. You can have the opportunity to be among those who sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom God is pleased. Bring peace and accept God's peace. And if we can help you do that today by taking advantage of his hope of salvation, by naming Christ as Lord, by having your sins washed away in baptism, there's no greater way to spend a Christmas. If you have the need, please let it be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and sing.